Welcome back to the Royal Studies Podcast. We've got a very special episode today. We're going to be looking at an exhibition that's currently running at Kensington Palace until the 29th of October, 2023. It's called Crown to Couture. And here with me today, I have two of the people who are intimately involved in the creation of this fantastic exhibition. So we're going to be hearing a lot about the exhibition in just a moment. But before we do that, I wanted to introduce two of our special guests today. So one of our guests is Polly Putnam, who is collections curator at Historic Royal Palaces, and she's responsible for the management, research, display, and interpretation of the collections and displays post-1650 at Hampton Court. She has a particular responsibility for Kew Palace as well. She's been the curator for numerous projects, including the Chocolate Kitchens at Hampton Court and the restoration of the Great Pagoda in Kew Gardens. At Kensington Palace, she curated the Victoria Woman and Crown exhibition, which explored Victoria's self-fashioning and the intersection of her public role and personal life. She's the lead curator for Crown de Couture, and before this, she worked at Leeds Museums and Galleries, where she led on numerous restoration projects, displays, and exhibitions. And with her today is Holly Marsden, who's currently completing her PhD through the AHRC's Collaborative Doctoral Partnership Scheme with the University of Winchester and Historic Royal Palaces. Holly previously studied queer history for her MA and history of art for her undergraduate degree. Her thesis looks at the multiple identities of Queen Mary II in the context of queenship, culture and politics in the 17th century. As part of her PhD, Holly completed a curatorial student placement with Polly Putnam, who we'll be speaking with shortly, on Crown de Couture. Before that, she worked in placements in the curatorial team of the Tudor to Regency Galleries at the National Portrait Gallery's Inspiring People Reopening Project, and she also worked on Historic Royal Palace's Queer Lives Immersive Theatre Tours. So thank you both for coming to join me today. I'm really excited to talk to you both about this innovative exhibition. So Polly, I wanted to start with you and ask you what spurred you to create this exhibition? What inspired you to, to, to kind of get into this Crown de Couture idea? Yeah. But it was quite an accident is, is kind of how, how I'd say it. Um, so there happened to be an exhibitions proposal meeting um, and it happened the Tuesday after the first Monday in May in 2018. So the first Monday in May is obviously it's the Met Gala. And then um, I was just looking at that and there's just such a spectacle of fashion and there's kind of this, there's the kind of the grand steps outside the Met. There are the biggest dresses you've ever seen. And kind of my exhibition proposal was this, was like, do you know, Georgian Court was quite like the Met Gala. And then it kind of spir spiraled on from there and got worked up into a kind of a, a better proposal. A lot of, um, I should say that a lot of my thinking was sort of directly inspired by um, Hannah Gregg's work. Um, her work on elite Londoners, um, particularly her book, The Beaumont, which explores elite London living and has some really insightful chapters on um, court, court life. Um, so that's kind of me having read Hannah and me actually <clears throat> generally just quite like quite liking the red carpet is probably where it all came from. Fantastic. Excellent. Well, we'll go back to the, the Met Gala in just a bit, because I can definitely see that connection there. Um, so in terms of putting this kind of exhibition together, how long did it take? You were saying kind of 2018 was kind of where you started to think about it. So how long did it take to actually kind of make it happen? And what do you think was the most challenging aspect of bringing it to fruition? So I'll start with Polly, but then I'll, I'll come over to Holly on that as well. 
Um, so the exhibition was actually due to open on in 2021, um, but there was a little thing called the global ban pandemic that happened in between them. And so we, we pushed it back to 2023, which was actually kind of a, a lot better for all, um, partly because it gave us more time to research. Um, and also I think for us sort of as, as an institution, this is, was always gonna be an investment for us. And so we actually kind of wanted to make sure that there'd be visitors to see it. Whereas in 2021, things were still really dodgy um, from that point of view. Now I can appreciate the pandemic definitely kind of scuppered a lot of exhibition plans. So yeah, fair enough, fair enough. So Holly, what did you find the most challenging aspect of kind of working on this as a placement student? So I think, um, so I started on the project in January, 2022. So I worked on it for about a year and a quarter. Um, and I think the most challenging part for me, I think because I'm so like thesis orientated at the moment as a PhD student, um, when I was writing some of the captions or um, helping out writing any of the exhibition texts or the guide texts, or, or even for the, the exhibition catalogue, just switching my brain from, and because I have quite I, very little experience working um, on exhibitions or publications, um, switching my brain from kind of academic thesis writing mode to uh, kind of a more public facing, um, public writing that's more suitable for a public audience. Um, so yeah, I think I, I called upon Polly's help a lot for, for that, especially with the the catalogue pieces that I wrote, because it really is such a different style of writing. And so I found that really challenging, actually. Um, but a really good exercise um, for me, especially because I have quite little experience in it. And going forward, um, it's something I really need experience in. So, yeah, and I guess that really reflects the collaborative doctoral partnership scheme, right? That you're also kind of at the same time you're writing an academic thesis, you're getting all this fantastic placement opportunity within in the kind of curatorial sphere. But there is this kind of, yeah, jumping back and forth between writing a thesis and 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 writing it for a very different audience in a very different way. I can appreciate that might be a little bit mind boggling at times. Yeah, absolutely. I, I feel very so lucky that kind of the timing worked out um, with this placement because it's of been such a dream come true honestly um but yeah that that is the the great thing but also quite challenging thing about this program that I'm on is that you're kind of jumping between two worlds the whole time absolutely absolutely well I kind of wanted to go back to this Met Gala idea and this idea of that kind of I noticed when I was reading kind of the some of the promotional material for the exhibition it said the exhibition will draw surprising parallels between the intricate preparations for attending the historic royal court and the elaborate styling expected from modern red carpet events so I was I was wondering if you kind of expand on that so so Polly kind of what similarities can we see between a queen like you know Mary II that Holly's studying and Beyonce and Lizzo and Lady Gaga? Or, or I was also really struck by Billy Porter's kind of sun god outfit. And obviously that immediately makes me think about Louis XIV and kind of, you know, <laughs> how does that how does that work, that kind of juxtaposition between the two? Um, so one of my favorite bits in the whole show is actually when we look at getting ready for court. So um, there's this conceit in the exhibition that what, that what happens in the exhibition galleries is what would have happened in a townhouse, let's say. And then once you're in the palace, you're in the palace. So that's kind of the conceit of the exhibition. 
But the idea of getting ready, which obviously comes from the French court and becomes such an important part of the English court, really brought in with Charles II and then kind of kept in various forms with the Georgians, it kind of waters down. But there is still this idea of the open court. Um, and so really your passport entry court is, is what you wear. And so because of that, you, you don't really sort of, until 1790, you don't really get invitations. So it's all about what you wear. And there isn't the, and even the idea of sort of being introduced to court, you don't really see. So people can really just show up to something like a drawing room. But that whole idea of getting ready is really important. So that, so even though the kind of the levee, that morning getting up, up ritual, that doesn't really exist in court in the same way in the Georgian era, but where it does survive is actually in the Georgian townhouse. And so people would go in and um, it was very much a lady's domain. And it was what uh, a lady going to court was expected to do, which is why she'd be given an incredible silver toilet service. We have the most amazing one from the Ashmolean Museum by Paul de Lamery, which was used by Charity Treby, the wife of um, George I, master of the household. And people would watch her get dressed and people would kind of see see her get ready. She would pontificate. People would have a chance to kind of catch her ear. And kind of back in 2012, when I did an exhibition on beds and bedrooms, um, this seems such an alien concept to people. But actually now um, there's the get ready with me video, which is just such a huge part of kind of the whole experience of a red carpet event like the Oscars or the Met Gala, where celebrity stylists are, are sort of releasing the these videos the whole time on kind of someone getting dressed. And so that idea is much more familiar, but also the idea that carries through is this idea of kind of a performed intimacy. So we have this wonderful video of um, Kendall Jenner getting ready in her Givenchy dress and obviously she's looking all vulnerable and pretty but she's in total control over what she's saying and in a similar way a great Georgian hostess a society woman even though she's there with her sort of powdering cloak on she is in control of that situation as well so that's just one and that's probably my favorite parallel that we we like to kind of bring out in the exhibition I love that. And while you were talking, it made me think too about like brides, you know, that whole part of getting ready and that's often kind of captured by bridal photographers and shared by the whole kind of bridal party. But I was also thinking in these days, a lot of people do that kind of going out, out thing and kind of the whole kind of ritual of kind of getting ready to go. So I love that, that that's like a key part of the exhibition. That's really interesting. And Holly, I wanted to kind of come back to you as well, because thinking about the similarities between you know, kind of pre-modern courtiers and, and, and people today. One of the pieces that you wrote for the exhibition catalog was about queerness at court. I think that's really interesting because again, we think of that as being a kind of modern thing, but again, you're placing it in a pre-modern context. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I think um, I think in the exhibition, we really, as, as Paulie mentioned, we really wanted to draw parallels between today and, and the Georgian period. And part of that is showing that people of all identities have always existed. And um, so in this piece, I wanted to tell the story of a few characters that we have at court who we could now label as queer. And obviously language has changed so much and, and approaches to sexuality and gender have changed so much during the period um, between the Georgian era and now. Um, but yeah, I really, I just wanted to show that queer people have always existed and 
some of these amazing celebrity characters like Lord Harvey or um, Lady Sarah Churchill or um, uh, Lady Mary Wortley Montague were kind of who we can label now as queer practicing people um, who had lovers of different genders and um, kind of engaged in non-heteronormative practices. Um, and so, yeah, I would suggest reading the catalogue if, if um, anyone listening is intrigued. Um, but yeah, they have these amazing stories and um, Sarah Churchill is, is quite famous for The Favourite. That's probably her most, fa- her most famous kind of storyline is her relationship with Queen Anne um, and kind of the power dynamics and potentially sexual dynamics that were going on. Um, but l- later on, she was still in the Georgian period. She was kind of an older beauty at court and was still heralded for um, her celebrity status at this time. Um, so, yeah, I, I really wanted to to tell the stories of, of some really interesting people with very interesting lives um, who, yeah, d- displayed non-normative practices. I think for us, so we have portraits of all of these characters in the show. And for us, it was... We didn't we didn't choose these characters because they were queer. We chose them because they were examples of successful courtiers in court. And I think what Holly was really helpful for us on is um, because obviously she's got a master's in queer studies. So she was able to kind of bring that expertise and sort of our I sort of how we use that language in the show. Kind of, you know, Holly was very good at kind of checking us on things. Um we had long conversations about how we approached Jonathan Van Ness um, because they use he, she, and they as their pronouns and how do we approach that in the catalogue. Um, and that kind of thing was really, really helpful indeed. So um, Holly's input was really, really important. And actually, I think in the show, I think we've done sort of queerness quite a good service because we have a piece in the exhibition by Edward Crutchley and um, it's a modern piece, and the whole collection is based on a queer history of London. And this dress, which is designed to be worn by both um, men and women, so both female, females and masculine characters, um, was inspired by a tale of 1727, and it was about queer Molly House culture. And um, there was a house called, um, I think it's called, Holly, you'll correct me, um, Molly Claps, um Mary Mother Claps Molly Mother House Claps, anyway Molly it was House. yeah yeah Mother Claps Molly House which was raided in 1727 and actually all the men seven men were arrested and they were hanged and that hanging was so popular that the um the, the stands collapsed at the hanging at Tyburn so as well as this kind of quite positive story where kind of people's sexuality at court was quite open weirdly through a modern piece we can actually sort of bring in that reality so not for everyone was this kind of um freewheeling sexuality possible mm, mm. No. showing that kind of class was a real factor in in the acceptance of of queer practices 
Definitely, definitely. Well, that's really fantastic. Like I said, these really interesting parallels and comparisons between kind of pre-modern court culture and modern celebrity culture. And again, modern understandings of sexuality. So it's really, really interesting. I wanted to talk a little bit more about some of the specific pieces that you featured in the exhibition. I know there's the Rockingham Mantua, and I know that you've also drawn pieces from the Royal Ceremonial Dress Collection, but obviously there's other pieces that you've sourced from celebrities and all sorts of places. But I wanted to ask you both what your favorite piece was on display and I know that that's hard it's like asking you to pick like from your favorite children or something it's a difficult one but but Polly what was your favorite piece and then I'll turn over and ask Holly the same um so we have these kind of I call it a sleeper piece even though it's a magnificent thing so it's our um Spitalfields mantua which we know is probably worn by a lady called Mary Flaxman and it is probably the most perfect example of ladies' court dress that you can possibly see. So it's an English silk, which obviously it's good to kind of um, not wear French silks at an English court or Italian velvets. You know, you're kind of showing your support. It's um, in, it's wide enough to show that you've got wealth, so it's showy off enough, but it's kind of understated in some ways because of the kind of the beautiful cream color of it. We've got other ones which are kind of in pure silver, or for example, there's the National Museum of Scotland Mantua, which is 2.8 meters wide and mustard yellow. Um, so this is an example of just like, what would be the kind of, the sort of the essential court kit, but kind of, this isn't gonna like rock any boats. This is, you're gonna get through and it's gonna be fine and it's perfect. and beautiful and wonderful and the condition's really good. So I, I really like that one because, I mean, it just shows that this was actually the basic kit that you needed to have it bought. And that mantra was over two meters wide as well. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, I call it understated, but it's not really. Within the context of the show, it's understated. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And the amount of fabric that goes into these dresses, I mean, like you're saying, thinking about the width of them, etc. I mean, the cost is enormous. Anyone that like sews their own clothes even will know the more fabric you need, the more expensive the pieces. And these are expensive fabrics. I mean, thinking about the silks and the velvets, etc. Yeah, that is impressive. Definitely. Definitely. So I think um, the useful figure I have is that the average court mantra in the 1760s cost about 70 quid. Um, which was the equivalent of the annual salary of the master cook at Cute Palace for the same year. So an awful, awful lot of money. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So Holly, how about you? What was your favourite piece that's in the exhibition? Oh, it's very tricky, but I think the the Scotland Mantua that's the most amazing bright yellow, the, the fact that the pigment is still so strong is is just amazing. Um, and it's it's absolutely huge. I think when it came in, Polly, we took a photo of the box and the box itself was like absolutely massive. I look, I like took a photo next to it. And I look like a tiny, tiny ant. Um, it is so <laughs> big and um, so impressive. And the conservation team did such a good job of, it has quite a few ruffles and, and um, details on it. And the conservation team did such a good job of making them kind of really come alive. And you were, I think I always expect, um, clothing that that's that old to to look kind of flat and not really lively but the conservation team have really like brought it to life and and the color is just so vibrant and amazing um but and and also for the modern stuff i think blake lively's dress has has to be the standout for me but i think um 
that's enforced by by the recent news of her coming to see it and um changing how it was displayed so that's quite exciting the fact that she actually interacted with her own dress but there's so many there's so many to choose from so it's really quite hard to to pick favorites well, there are some really stunning pieces. So I, I guess my last question is thinking about how hard it is to kind of bring together, as you mentioned, there's National Museum Scotland. Obviously, there are some pieces that are within the Royal Ceremonial Dress Collection, but then all these celebrities, you got all of this material from them too. So how difficult was it to bring together this fantastic range of pieces from all of these different places? I mean, Polly, what was the hardest piece to acquire? I mean, did you really have any difficulties getting particular pieces or kind of wrenching them out of museums or celebrities' hands? Um, so the hardest one was was Beyonce. I mean, she she's the, the queen. So actually, in most cases, most of the contemporary pieces are owned by the fashion houses. And, and so um, they're kind of, it's a, kept by them after an event. Um, in very few cases, um, the piece is actually homage, that's the word that they give them to the wearer. Um, actually, the piece that was hardest was the Peter Dundas piece, which was worn by Beyonce at her 2017 Grammys appearance. Um, and it's an incredible piece. She wore it when she was pregnant um it's incredibly and kind of completely beautifully embroidered with kind of various gods and goddesses both african and kind of from the classical tradition um and so she she has this headdress which makes her looks like look like apollo very wonderful because we put it in the presence chamber and there's apollo on the ceiling so it's kind of just as the the world revolves around the sun obviously the court revolves around the king and so in which case the queen. Um, this was hard because um, it didn't belong to the designer, it belonged to Beyonce herself. So kind of getting Beyonce's team when she's on tour to kind of reply, say yes, et cetera, et cetera, is very, very hard. And it only arrived about three weeks, two weeks before we opened to the public. And so right up to the last minute, the conservatives were doing the mounting on, on the mannequin as well. So that was incredibly hard. <laughs> Um, piece of sauce because, um, you know, we had to ask the Queen for something. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. Well, I can imagine that is, you know, quite quite difficult within the exhibition. I guess we think often of paintings and, and material culture, but this is a totally different scenario. And, and it is interesting to think about the kind of process of, of asking someone for something when, again, they're, they're busy on tour, they've got other things, and they're probably not thinking about what, you know, about a dress that they wore once and is, is now kind of preserved in their, I don't know, I guess Beyonce has a closet of closets. She's probably like the Queen, has like a whole kind of wardrobe building. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think what was amazing is how it was supportive of all the institutions were, especially, um, you know, I was asking for some quite serious paintings. So, for example, Mrs. Abington from Yale, Centre of British Art. So she's got, there's a good case for making her the first stylist. Um, she was a famous actress. She made an extra £1,400 a year by advising rich people on what to wear. And um, I, this is kind of one of Reynolds' great masterpieces. And, you know, I don't have anything very new to say about Reynolds, um, but perhaps I had new things to say about Mrs. Abington herself. Um, and maybe that helps us understand that portrait. But I was very, I've, I expected Yale to say no, to be honest, because it's one of the first paintings that you see. It's kind of, the, you know, one of the great masterpieces of British art. But here, here we are. And, um, 
yeah, my label talks about her kind of quite boldly as a stylist. So I was amazed at how supportive all these institutions were. It was such a, that, that portrait is one of the most stunning portraits I've ever seen, I think. And um, it was a real learning curve, Polly, when we were kind of filling out all the documentation to get it here. And yeah, because I don't have much experience with loans already, this show with pieces like the the Reynolds of Mrs. Abington, but then also with like Lizzo's dress. And it was a real unique experience of, of yeah, of, of loans and, and um, filling out the appropriate documentation for the appropriate object. And um, yeah, it was, it was very Holly good. Holly did the immunity from seizure paperwork, which is, it's quite nice work, but it's quite prolonged where we have to do incredibly thorough provenance research in, into the piece so that we can um, ask essentially HMRC, so Her Majesty's, I can't remember what it stands for. Anyway, we have to ask customs to make sure that um, there's immunity from seizures so that no one can kind of make a claim on it while it's on display with us in the UK. So that's a piece of government paperwork that Holly had to prepare for us for show. And actually um, we did really well, Holly did really well, another institution was borrowing from another and she showed this on the grapevine and they didn't get their paperwork in on time so they couldn't borrow the painting so holly's work was really really important for the for the show it was it was a real achievement for me i felt very proud when it arrived <laughs> well both of you have really shown the labor of love that it takes to make an exhibition like it. i think so many people will just come and they'll enjoy it but they won't appreciate all of the kind of work and effort and the paperwork that goes into making an exhibition like this possible. Thank you so much uh, for joining me and telling me more about this exhibition. For those of you listening to this podcast recording, you can catch Crown de Couture. It's running until the 29th of October at Kensington Palace. Um, we'll have some material in the show notes to tell you a bit more about it, but you've got plenty of time left to catch it. And of course, there's the exhibition catalog. There's a lot of fantastic material online. So if you can't physically make it there, you can enjoy and learn more about it that way as well. So thank you again to Polly Putnam and to Holly Morrison for joining me today to tell me more about Crown de Couture. And if you're listening to this podcast, go ahead and go visit and, and see it for yourself. Thank you guys so much for joining us. Thanks, amazing. Thank you.